0: Business Class, a podcast sponsored by the iBear MBA program of the USC Marshall School of Business, expert insight into the world of business. Carl Voigt, professor of clinical management and organization at the USC Marshall School of Business and academic director of the USC iBear MBA program says, it's a strategic truism that you are successful until you're not.
1: Why do big companies without strategy survive? The answer is that they're just big.
0: In this episode, business class looks at strategy. We started with the question of how a big company can even survive if it doesn't have a good strategy.
1: In essence, successful companies have two things that differentiate them from those that that glide off into history. And that is they have insightful, compelling, bold leaders And they have great strategies. At the core or the kernel of a strategy, a good strategy, is a guiding policy. And that guiding policy addresses a fundamental challenge. It's not just pick this. It's not experiment, pivot quickly. It's about having some underlying insight into where you want to go and sticking to it.
0: We backed up and asked Carl to help us get inside the concept of strategy.
1: Let's tell a story. Let's talk about the Cold War. Why did it take the US so long to win the Cold War? One explanation is is that the US didn't have a good strategy. In fact, you could argue that it had a bad strategy. If you go back, in 1946, George Keenan, an American diplomat, with more than a decade of experience in the Soviet Union, sent what we refer to now as the famous long telegram. In that telegram, he describes the Soviets' ideological commitment uh, to communism and their desire to spread it throughout the world regardless of means. They were opposed, ideologically opposed, to capitalism. Um, They were true believers, completely committed to their vision of the world. He argued that they they couldn't be reasoned away from that position by normal diplomacy. And so out of that, he recommended what we now have, or what was the, of the day, a policy of containment. He argued that what the U.S. should do was to block and hold back the communists wherever they tried to expand. And so what we see through history, you know, first of all, was the Korean War, then Berlin, the splitting of Berlin, the Berlin airlift, then we have Vietnam, and then we see – other smaller conflicts throughout the world, Central America. We have, you know, the forces of the West trying to hold back communism. And so the U.S. and the Soviet Union got themselves into this this battle, as it were, the four four decades long of escalating commitment of investments in missiles, long-range bombers, submarines, and all sorts of other armaments. The world came to accept this. Is that this was the new, to use the word we use it today, the new normal, that you know that this would be the status quo. You'd have these two superpowers, each of them investing in nuclear weapons, and you know everybody lived daily with the fear that somebody was going to pull a trigger. But the idea was that if the U.S. had enough to destroy the Soviet Union and the Soviet Union had enough to destroy the U.S., that somehow that would convince people nobody pushes the button. So there was this hope that everybody had that rational people would be in governments on both sides and and this would never happen. And so from this, the idea of mutual deterrence emerged. And so the Cold War became this battle of how many times can I destroy you? I'm winning because I can destroy you 136 times, you can only destroy me 132 times. I mean, there's something fundamentally illogical in, in that approach to having a having a conflict. Um, you know, as we look back at this now, it's easy to criticize it. Um, that was an approach for winning. That was an ongoing investment in military hardware. But what changed, and when? How did the U.S. end up winning the Cold War? So, remelt. Richard Ramelt, who's written a book called Good Strategy, Bad Strategy, actually documents out this story, and he focuses on uh, Andy Marshall, who was in the Office of Net Assessment in the Defense Department, who had prepared a memo in the 70s, and in that memo, he actually outlined what we would argue to be a good strategy. The memo focused on finding advantages. It was identifying where the US had strengths and the Soviets had weaknesses, and to bring the US's strengths against the Soviets' weaknesses. What had been lost in the Cold War strategy of the day was this essence of what real strategy is, my strengths against your weaknesses. That's how you win. And so what he recommended was that the US should push where they had advantages, the accuracy of missiles that a missile, instead of having more missiles, I just have better ones that come through the window and take out me and leave you sitting there. The quietness of submarines, investments in other areas where the U.S. had technological advantages. And he recommended investing in these things and other things which would make the Soviet Union's systems obsolete. Right, Not more, but better and different. So, as we remember, in 1990, when the Soviets were faltering, it was because they couldn't keep up. They'd become themselves overextended. They'd had their own war in Afghanistan. They had economic problems at home. In the end, it was the Soviets' limited resources that held them back. The U.S.'s investment in more accurate missiles, forward placement of missiles in Europe, Reagan's Star Wars, the Strategic Defense Initiative, Underwater surveillance, leadership in semiconductors, among many things, had all combined to put unbearable pressure on the Soviet Union. And as we all know now, the Soviet Union crumbled and was pulled apart, and the Cold War was finally over. What Andy Marshall had created was a good strategy, one with a chance of winning, with a chance to produce results and end the Cold War. He reminded everyone something that everybody should have known was the essence of a strategy is to use your advantages against your competitors' weaknesses in a way where they cannot respond or cannot respond without bearing huge costs. The Cold War illustration is, I think, a great example of a good strategy.
0: We asked Carl to connect the story of the Cold War to today's business world.
1: Perhaps it's useful to start out by talking about what bad strategy is. And I want to make a point here, and and I want to draw back to the book by Richard Rommelt, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. Rommelt takes a very strong position in that book, that bad strategy isn't just the absence of good strategy, it is a way of thinking that is being sold to business, sold to governments, sold to individuals, as how you come up with this, this thinking about how you win. What bad strategy is, is supplementing or substituting another form of thinking for the type of thing that you want to come up with. You know, let me give you some examples of you know, what bad strategies are. You know, you've probably heard many of these. Our strategy is to be a, the low-cost producer. We're pursuing a global strategy. The company's strategy is to integrate a set of regional acquisitions. Our strategy is to provide unrivaled customer service. Is there any company out there that says we provide sucky service? I mean, you know, I mean, our strategy is to move from defense to commercial applications, right? What are these? They're anything but strategies. They're goals, they're, they're descriptions, they're aspirational visions, but they're not strategies. So I want to be clear. Bad strategy is, is not the same thing as, as saying you have no strategy, all right, or a strategy that fails. Bad strategy is a way of thinking about decision-making and planning a set of activities that many companies have adopted, okay? Many think that what they're doing is good strategy, but unfortunately, in reality, they could not be no further from the truth. People confuse goals with strategy, They prepare SWOT analyses, thinking that their lists of strengths and weaknesses, opportunities and threats will somehow help them find the right direction for their organizations. They substitute ambition and effort for the difficult thinking that must go into strategic decision-making. They argue that by reacting quickly, that's a strategy. People argue that success comes from experimenting quickly, learning from the experiments, and then pivoting. There's nothing wrong with all of these things. They're all important for organizations to do, but they're not strategies.
0: If a business has a strategy, how can they tell if it's a good one or a bad one?
1: How do you know if you've got a bad strategy? You have a bad strategy, number one, if you fail to face a problem or a challenge. You have a bad strategy if you mistake goals for a strategy. You have a bad strategy if you're making bad choices, and you have a bad strategy if it's just fluff, big words. The problem with most strategies is that people don't like to face the facts. Um, People don't like to admit that they have a problem. They avoid talking about it even worse. they, They don't take the time to think clearly and deeply about all the dimensions of a problem. And so they avoid the the difficult thinking that comes around from diagnosing the the problem. So that's your first hallmark of a bad strategy. Second, you know, they get as far as saying, you know, we 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 want to be number 1. Our strategy is to be number 1 and we're going to keep trying until we become number 1. That's a goal, that's not a strategy. Well, thirdly, I should say, unclear, ambiguous, ill-defined objectives are key problem. In bad strategies. What are you aiming at? This, this goes to the question of how do firms decide what to do and not to do. You have to have a clear understanding of where you want to go, including a wish list of everything that you'd like to do is not going to be helpful.
0: Then we move to where a good strategy comes from. Good strategy
1: cannot be delegated. That's one of the biggest mistakes that companies make because it's so hard and it requires choice. People don't like making choices because when you make a choice, choices come with costs, costs of failure. So I'd better, you know, I'd prefer to delegate it to you because if you get it wrong, I can fire you. I can outsource and pay a lot of money to a consulting firm, a McKinsey, a Booz Allen, a Bain, a BCG. And, you know, if, if it goes bad, well, it was the consultant's fault. At the end of the day, strategy making is not something that a CEO or a leader of any organization can delegate to other people. It has to be embodied in everything that they do. They have to think it. They have to mirror it. They have to communicate it. It has to become coherent in every action that they have. What is common in all successful firms, whether it's Apple or Amazon, Toyota or Rolls-Royce, Alibaba or Facebook, Coca-Cola or Unilever, is that they all have good strategies. Decades of research and common-sense evidence clearly show that what differentiates winning firms from those that falter and fall away is their bold leadership and their coherent strategies. The essence of strategy is quite simple, but it's not easy. It's to win something, whatever endeavor, it's your career, it's a business, it's a war, all right, it's about winning. The truth is many or I might add, most companies, especially large, complex companies, don't really have strategies. At the core, good strategy is about focus. But most complex organizations don't focus their efforts, energies, or resources. Instead, they pursue multiple goals at the same time, hoping that something is going to work, never concentrating enough effort On any particular area to have a breakthrough.
0: We asked for some basic rules.
1: Good strategy has at least three parts. And, you know, Rommel calls this the kernel of a strategy because the the three parts are it's it's a clear, insightful diagnosis of a problem or an opportunity, but it's a simplified it's, it's, it's something that everybody in the organization understands. It's taking the complexity and getting it down to a simple, understandable way. It's a guiding policy that's not so specific as to tell you to do left or right, but to give you direction and to tell you what not to do, but allow you enough creat- creativity to choose going forward. And then the last part is coherent action.
0: Carl went back to history. This time farther back to Napoleon and Lord Nelson, and how good strategy won the Battle of Trafalgar.
1: Perhaps, perhaps I can give you an, a, another story, um, a famous story, which is the Battle of Trafalgar. What, what do we got going on here? Napoleon wants to conquer Europe. He needs to get to the UK. In order to get to the UK, he needs to have his navy defeat the British navy. Okay. Nelson, being the admiral at the time, obviously is tasked with making sure that doesn't happen. But here's the situation. Napoleon puts together the French and the Spanish fleets. they are newer boats, bigger boats, more guns. That navy was the largest navy ever assembled at the time in, in the history of the world to that point. There are 33 larger boats with more guns. The British had a smaller fleet, smaller boats, 27 ships. So if you do the traditional SWOT analysis, more boats, bigger guns wins. So what you should do in that situation is send in the diplomats, sue for peace, and move on. Nelson, on the other hand, is a strategist. So he diagnoses the situation. The heart of any good strategy is finding, as we saw in the story of the Cold War, what is it that you can do better than the other person? That becomes part of your guiding policy. So what does he do? He looks at his boats. He says, i got smaller boats. i got experienced captains. What Nelson does is he, he sits there and says, we need, you know, we need a strategy. Okay? Strengths and weaknesses, opportunities and threats, they're not going to get you anywhere. He understands the real essence of strategy. He needs to diagnose the challenge he's got. He's up against bigger boats, more guns. He's got smaller boats, but he's got experienced captains. Looks at that and says, "Okay, that's the situation. What do I do?" So he he sits there and he says, "Okay, how do we how do we think about this?" The military strategy of the day was to line your boats up in formation and sail them past each other, shooting your cannons. And at the end of the battle, whoever had the more boats floating won. That 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 approach to a battle, a naval battle, is is, is a losing. You got bigger boats, more guns. You got smaller boats, less guns. You're going to lose. So what does he do? He sits there and says. Hmm, what have I got? I've got smaller boats. Smaller boats against bigger boats. Hmm. Smaller boats are more maneuverable. I've got to change the nature of this game from one of boats in formation to one, on, to a, to one of one-on-one. On one so as he famously as everybody knows by reading history he famously takes his his boats and he puts them in two columns divides his ships in two columns and drives them directly at the french takes huge risks because those boats at the front if those french gunners and, and spanish gunners had been able to line their their cannons up it would have just sunk these columns of boats coming one after another but as it turns out the weather was horrendous that day the seas were going up and down and it worked in his favor and so what, what Nelson did was he drove his boats at the coherent front of the French and the Spanish, broke their coherence, and turned the, the battle from one of co- coherent wall of steel into a battle of one-on-one. The advantage flips to smaller boats with experienced captains, which were much more maneuverable. I mean, history tells us what happens. At the end of the day, You know, the, two-thirds of the French-Spanish fleet are sunk. Not a single British boat is sunk. Sadly, Nelson is shot and killed during this battle, and so he goes down as the you know one of the most uh, historic, you know heroic uh, uh, military her- heroes in 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 the British history. But they have the essence. There were no cell phones. Right? He needed coherent action, so his guiding policy was communicated to his captains, who all understood in intrinsically what they needed to do. They could explain it to their, to their, their crew members and everybody realized what we got to do there, we got to break the coherence of the French and Spanish and turn it into a game where we have the advantage. He found the asymmetry. So a good strategy has these parts. It's a diagnosis of the challenge, diagnosing it in a different way. It's Andy Marshall saying, there, you know, where do we have the asymmetry? Well, we have asymmetry in technology. Leverage that outspend the Russians. That becomes the essence of the strategy. And then the guiding policy is something that simplifies what all the activities and focuses at the problem as it's being diagnosed. But then the most important part that companies forget is there has to be coherent action. Everybody knows what direction that you're going in. Good strategy is always obvious after the fact. That's the difficult part. The real work of strategy is the deep thinking, the cleverness of connecting dots, thinking about things differently and in novel ways. It requires seeing dots to connect that other people don't see. Good strategy works by focusing on a few pivotal objectives. And if you can achieve those objectives, everything else cascades in this sort of multiplying effect within your organization. I mean, that in a real way is the essence of good
0: strategy. Business class, expert insight into the world of business. The host, Dick Drobnik, producer, Pankaj Bhushan, director, Dan Griffin, web developer, Rick Pine, and I am Robin Garthwaite.